Welcome to PharmaTalk Radio Podcasts. I'm pleased to share a panel discussion from the 2022 Chief Medical Officer Summit on the topic of biotech financing options and their implications. For more information about the CMO Summit, our editorials, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you and enjoy the podcast. So I'm going to ask my panelists to introduce themselves. And uh, what we've discussed is that I've, I've asked them to do pretty fulsome discuss of uh, introductions of themselves, just so you get a sense of the um, engagement they've had in biotech financing. So Tarek, why don't I start with you? Sure, and thank you to the organizers. Thank you for inviting me. So I'm Tarek Kassam. I am CEO of the company Celsius Therapeutics. So, a couple of words on Celsius. It's a therapeutics company based in Cambridge, Massachusetts, where we are focusing on making precision medicines where precision medicines don't currently exist, like autoimmune disease, like immuno-oncology. And to do that, we've built a platform that includes single-cell genomics and machine learning to identify targets and patient subsets in those populations. Now, as for me, so I am a lapsed medical doctor. I went to medical school, but upon graduation, I actually started working in the business world right away. First, as an investment banker and stock analyst covering the biotech sector, where I got to see a lot of companies from the outside in. And then I actually moved to the pharma world, where I spent a number of years with Millennium and Takeda, leading business development and oncology and doing global M&A work. And then about six years ago, started working with the venture firm Atlas Venture to start the cell and gene therapy company Obsidian Therapeutics before moving to Celsius about three years ago. So I have seen, I feel like, many of the different angles of this business, uh, outside into companies, companies trying to finance, being in a company that's been trying to finance, actually being in two companies that have tried to finance, and being on the pharma side, watching companies try to finance and thinking about what that means for the possibility of doing transactions with them. So there are many dimensions to this business, several of which I've experienced. Thank you. Jeff? Hi there. Nice to meet everyone. Thanks for having me. Uh, so my background, personally, I'm a recovering bulge bracket investment banker. Did my tour of duty at UBS back when that was the largest healthcare group on the street. I worked at MedImmune, which is now AstraZeneca, in their business development group. Was at SR1, a biotech venture uh, fund, which at the time was part of GSK, now is an independent venture firm, uh, for two years and did eight venture deals uh, from the investor side. And then went to work at a venture-backed biotech company where some very smart investors flushed more than $100 million down the drain and gave me a great education in the process. Uh, and from there, I took all that education, expensive education on, on their dime, uh, to start Locust Walk, which is a, uh, a firm that helps companies, biotech companies, with their strategy and then deal-making. So I think from, from your perspective, we, we help where a deal is an input to or an output from a strategy. So if you have a platform and you need to figure out what indications to go after, uh, the applications, what do you partner, what do you keep, what do you finance, how much do you finance, we kind of do that work. And then on the back end, we will help then do strategic partnering, uh, but also raising capital. So we, we spend more time with private companies from a capital raise perspective, but certainly work with a lot of public companies as well. So seeing the world of biotech deal-making from all sides of the table. So that's me. And before I go to Anne, can you explain bulge bracket for our new CMOs? 
it is a big investment bank that relies on their name for their reputation. So JP Morgan, Bank of America, I guess UBS used to be in that realm, Morgan Stanley, that, those types of banks. Thanks. And Anne? Yes. Um, I'm a recovering medical doctor, but I also somehow settled myself with a master's in biotechnology and a PhD in pharmacology. And so I went into the industry on the research side, ran a lab at the company that's now Sanofi, at J&J. And what happened is my drugs kept on moving into the clinic. And then people realized I had different initials behind my name. And they pulled me along with the drug. And at some point, I said, um, I'm going to do this full time. And I've mainly worked in rare diseases at Shire, at Agios. And uh, my first EMO position was at Translate Bio. Messenger RNA, which um, went through an IPO and multiple rounds of financing and then got acquired by Sanofi a couple of months ago. And now I'm on my second CMO stint as of three weeks ago at Camp 4, which is uh, focused on antisense oligonucleotides to increase gene expression in monogenetic rare diseases. Great, thank you. And I'll give a little of my background just from the standpoint of the uh, topic of the panel. This is my third CMO role. I'm at Entrada Therapeutics now, and I uh, have done a couple of Series B crossover rounds with both AvroBio as well as Entrada, and um, also IPOs at both of those companies. So um, first, for all of our panelists, I'd like to just have you each please describe the role of the CMO as you see it from the standpoint of biotech financing. So I'll start with you, Anne. Others during this conference have touched upon it. You are a voice of credibility. People tend to give the CEOs a little bit more leniency in blue sky thinking, the sky's the limit, our drug will treat its intended disease, plus cure cancer and Alzheimer and the common cold. So people, people accept to some extent that CEOs do that. When they look at CMOs, you now have to bring this down this concept, this dream down to what's feasible. And that doesn't mean that you, you never contradict your CEO, but you bring it down to what can we do? How long will it really take, really take? Um, what is the precedent? And so bringing that, that voice of calm experience and realistic expectations to, to the discussions Another thing that I think a CMO does, it's, it bridges, again, for a theme that has been um, touched upon before, it bridges between answering the question and messaging. Because if the question is something like, how much difference will your drug make in the enzyme activity of your target enzyme? The CSO will say 5%. The CEO will say, and this will cure cancer and Alzheimer's disease. The CMO is then the person who bridges those two ways of thinking and say, 5% increase of enzyme activity means that we could help 40% of the patients in really improving their quality of life or whatever the endpoint might be. And so even if the question is enzyme activity, the underlying need is how will this drug work? And this is where I think CMOs can bridge those two different types of messaging. Great, I just wanna follow on that. So that sounds kind of hard, right? Because you're the person 
that actually has to sort of temper the message. So when you're working with your CEOs, how do you manage that from the standpoint of, you mentioned not contradicting. So talk to us about how you manage that sort of dance between making sure the team is credible in front of the investors, but you're still getting the right message across from the medical perspective. As with so many things, it's all in the preparation. So you really need to sit down with your CEO and go through the messaging and almost feed them their lines. And then um, if they stray into exuberance during a, a, an actual meeting, you know, you let it go, but afterwards you might tell it, you know, no, we're not going to cure cancer and Alzheimer. We're going to cure, you know, this particular disease. And most CEOs hire their CMOs too late anyway. So by the time you arrive, <clears throat> I find that they're actually very um, accepting and grateful for this because they, they kind of know they need this and um, they will listen to what you say. You always say this in a polite, collaborative way, of course, but I think they, they are... My experience has been that they're very happy to hear you provide those guardrails because actually sometimes it works the other way around where the C CEO thinks, of, well, we can treat these patients. And you say, no, actually, we could, with a little bit of luck, treat these patients as well. Uh, that's usually an easier message to get the CEO to adopt. But um, the CEOs do realize that they need to listen to you. I will just say a word in defense of CEOs. <laughs> all, all my CEOs have been wonderful people. Let me just uh, make that I will that just clear. say, one thing that you touched on, though, that I think is notable is this, uh, that, that we often hire CMOs too late. And I agree with that. Part of the problem is that CMOs also often don't want to join a company that is deeply, deeply preclinical and where the risk of actually getting something to the clinic is fairly high at that stage. So unfortunately, it's like this game theory, right? Um, but, uh, but I think ultimately you're right on that. The other thing that I would just point out in terms of the, the CMO's role in the financing process occurs weeks and months before the financing process actually kicks off, and that's in the realistic but yet still ambitious planning for what the company needs to do clinically in terms of the study design, in terms of the actual studies, such that you can do the math on how much money you need to raise, how, much that raise, how far that raise will get you in terms of milestones. And importantly for that, I think the, the Jedi Master CMO understands the, the need to achieve tangible value-inflecting milestones for the company, plus a little bit extra in case things don't work out. Very so. true. I'll take maybe a slightly different tact on, on the question. <clears throat> I think the CMO is the number two most important person in the pitch. Uh, clearly, the CEO is the, the leader of the charge, uh, but for a clinical stage company, the credibility that a CMO establishes can make or break an investor's decision to put money into the company. I also think there's a slight difference between a public company and a private company. I think a public company, it is a lot more scripted, the types of things you can say and cannot say due to regulation FD, which basically means everyone has to know the same thing at the same time. Make sure I define everything. Um, and at a private company, usually there's under a confidentiality agreement, the, the CMO has more latitude to answer the questions. So to, to piggyback off of, of Ann's comment, I think 
choreographing the meeting ahead of time such that a clinical related question should automatically move to the CMO as opposed to the CEO butchering it and CMO having to, to cover, I think is generally what I would recommend a company do. Yep, I agree with all of those. Um, Tarek, can you just speak a little more when you're actually as a CEO looking for your chief medical officer, and, and let's say your company is still private, what types of things are you looking for specifically related to how they think about the financing piece? Hmm. Well, <clears throat> I actually have a list of seven attributes that we're looking for in a CMO. I won't recite all of them, uh, lucky you. The, the, the key point, though, is that a CMO has to be able to present information in a fashion that is sufficiently detailed to communicate the message, but yet in, with enough of a narrative arc such that the, the, the overall message holds true. That balance of detail and narrative is very tough for people to achieve. I, I, Seeing as we were picking on CEOs earlier, I'll pick on CSOs a little bit. CSOs are often terribly bad at this. So actually, I, I, you know, this is actually an area where I think a CMO may have a real advantage. That's one big thing that we look for. The other big thing is um, the ability to actually have great command of the subject matter and still get, still get the, um, the, message, uh, the, the, the sense of the message across. That it, without confusing people, basically. So if each of you could share with our audience one of the things that you learned or, or would want them to know about the actual process of going through an IPO, what might that be? And I'll start with you, Anne. Well, I will say something that's medical, and that is the following. The IPOs are physically, intellectually, mentally exhausting. You, you give the same pitch 20 times a day, you deal with questions 20 times a day, and then you get on a plane and fly to the next city. What I ex realized is that people re recharge in different ways after such a day, and um, people tend to follow the CEO's lead. And so if the CEO recharges after such a day by going to the bar and having a couple of beers and watching sports, people tend to congregate around him or her. I think as a CMO, you actually have the ability to say, people need to bring their best game again tomorrow. So if for you, CSO, recharging means going for a 5K run or going to the gym to work out instead of hanging out in the, in the, in the bar, there should be no peer pressure to sort of do what the others do. Similarly, as a CMO, you often have clinical trials running and after the end of this day, you need to go to your hotel room and deal with all the messages you, you didn't get to um, during the day. And I think that um, it's sometimes a useful reminder that when, when that very long and very intensive working day is done, you need to tailor to people's individual needs for recharging, relaxing, or you know, calling home to tell your kids where the hockey sticks are. Um, everybody has a different way of, of doing that, and um, we should, I guess, recognize people's individual needs to recharge, maintain their mental health, and then next day, do it again. 20 presentations on, a, on an airplane flight. Great. 
So you're bringing the actual medical aspects of taking care of your team as well, yeah. Jeff? So uh, I'll start a little earlier in the process. First off, make sure that you're involved in the S-1 drafting to position the story clinically. That's absolutely critical, because if it's not in the S-1, the registration statement that you file with the SEC, it's not gonna be in your presentation deck, because that has to be congruent. Number two, I would probably make sure to be as involved as you can in the overall IPO process and to learn, because if you are gonna be a CMO next, you'll probably be more valuable to your CEO. Uh, having that experience, and if you want to become a CEO, you need to know that if you want to get that job. Uh, I would say number three, just to piggyback off uh, further what Ann said, the, the roadshow is a very small piece of the IPO. It, it, now it's done virtually. It used to be fly over the world for two and a half weeks. It's now condensed to three and a half days. So I, I think the, the minding the shop still uh, holds. The question is, what about the four months leading up to that when you have responsibilities on the IPO, but you also need to make sure clinical trials are still enrolling and data is maintained, et cetera? So it's, it's an ongoing battle between a very intense job going and getting a company public and your day job, which you also can't forget. So food for thought. And I would just add, uh, I think the answers so far have been terrific, but I would add one thing, which is, and this is something that, that struck me when I went from medicine into the business world, was the um, incredible nonlinearity and unpredictability of business interactions. And I think this holds true for CMOs involved in private financings as well as public financings, which is to recognize that things may look amazing. You, know, don't, you don't need to get too excited about that. If things are kind of not looking like they're going great, you can't get too down about that because rescues happen from strange places. Oftentimes it just takes one investor to create um, a, a sort of cascading effect of success. Um, just understand that the process has a, a high degree of randomness. Focus on what you can do and don't let the, the natural sort of sine wave of business experience get you down. Great advice. Um, so for a, a CMO who hasn't been through any financing, um, whether it be private or public, how would you recommend that they learn about it from the standpoint of, you know, who would be a person at the company to go to? We, we've talked yesterday especially about vulnerability and C, uh, CMOs often not wanting to ask questions or admit that they don't know something. So who would you point them to at the company to, to sort of get that information? Yeah, I mean, obviously it depends on the composition of the company, right? And sometimes you will have people within the company who've gone through those kinds of processes, other times you won't. I actually think, though, you know, to this concept of vulnerability, if you are asking those questions internally within the company, I, I could imagine some people might be a little bit uncomfortable showing that vulnerability internally. This is where the external network really comes in. This is where having a peer network of other CMOs or maybe ex-CMOs uh, who can give you some, a little bit of insider insight into the process. I think that's gonna be by far the most helpful because then you, know, you can likely graft their experience onto your company with reasonable, reasonable fidelity. Um, and then that way you also maybe don't run the risk of, of um, I mean, 
it's not so much worry, you don't need to worry so much about highlighting your own ignorance. I mean, who cares, right? Okay, you're a medical doctor, you don't know anything about IPOs, that's fine. Um, but it also, it, it might be easier just, uh, I think, to get a, an external perspective on this from someone who's gone through something similar. So, totally agree. I guess my, my advice would be to stay in your lane, and once you veer off your lane, you're running the risk of looking less than ideal. So, the external, mark, the external uh, advisors makes tons of sense, peers, uh, CFOs, if you have a CFO. Some of the earlier stage companies might not have a CFO. Uh, so it's just the CEO and you, perhaps. Uh, and it might not be an IPO, it could be just a Series A financing, and you might come from a big pharma and have never been exposed to a small company. So if you stay in your lane, you do a good job explaining the story, the, the, the clinical aspects of things, I think just show up to the non-clinical parts of the process so you can learn as you go. That'd be the other thing. And Anne, you've, you've been through this, so what would be your advice? It's, the IPO process is so much uh, work for everybody that I would say keep your mouth shut and your eyes and ears open. <laughs> this is not the time to go and bug your CFO, but what, what, what does this abbreviation mean in the S1? They have an intensive job to do, but as you know, show up, be in the meetings, even if you don't have, this is a particular meeting where you don't have to say a thing, listen and figure it out afterwards with your, with your peer network by Googling it, whatever, taking advantage of a quiet moment, a social moment to ask for it, but um, don't, don't turn um, a purely financial discussion where you happen to be present into a teachable or, or, or learning moment for yourself. Um, you will pick up more than you believe just by being in the same meeting, just by even, you know, while you're in the airport uh, talking about your next meeting, you will pick up more than you, uh, than you know. Because I think one thing about medical doctors, I think we're all used to absorbing a lot of disparate sources of information and making the best of it. Yeah, learn, learn by osmosis, yes. yeah, yeah. Um, and, and it does become interesting how you start to put the puzzle pieces together. I, I reflect back on realizing, you know, Series B typically, not always, but means crossover. And sort of some of those pieces and parts or crossover and it's the phenotype of the investors and, and those sorts of things start to come together. Um, so there's been some discussion about IPO processes and, and private financing, I guess, um, before COVID and after COVID. Do you think that we will go back to the before COVID approach to raising, or do you think that we will continue to do things more virtually? Anne? I really don't know. <laughs> I. I would think there will be, again, a push to do more face-to-face, -face, especially when it's you know Manhattan and Baltimore and San Francisco, because I do have the sense that uh, potential investors want to have the, the nonverbal cues, and they really do want to see not just what you say, but how you function as a team. And if that is an important factor in the decision to invest or not, as I believe it is, then they might... Um, um, choose to do more of the face-to-face, -face, but I, I defer to my, my more business-minded colleagues on this. I'll make a bold prediction. The 
investor conferences are gonna go back in person because that's more regular paced and you know what you're getting into. But the road shows are gonna remain virtual because those are very intense, they're hyper efficient, and I can't see people flying around the country again on a road show. Yeah, I believe that the future will involve a hybrid of what was in the past and what we've experienced over the last couple of years. Just a quick example, so this past week, at Celsius, we participated in uh, an investment bank's uh, conference, this SVB Lyrinc company, private company Connect. And over the course of three days, we were able to do 12 one-on-ones with investors in between other work at the company. And it was just a sort of general introduction. Hey, here, here's who we are. Here's what we're doing. Oh, interesting. Okay, maybe we'll follow up with you. Like, you know, the, those kinds of interactions, I think now when we can do them virtually, can become a, um, a much... Uh, um, you can take more shots, basically, and, and connect with more accounts than you would have been able to using an exclusively in-person approach. So, but, to the point mentioned earlier, you can't read body language over the Zoom. You can't tell whether somebody's squirming when you're asking a question. That, I th so I think that the, the natural pace of this will be virtual early and then in-person discussions when things actually start getting real. Yeah, one thing I would reflect on and the difference between the two um, is that in the live situation, you had a little bit of downtime between meetings, and as a team, you could reconnect. What did we do well? What maybe didn't we do well? You can still do that virtually as you, you know, maybe get off one Zoom and reconnect with your team, but often now in the virtual world, the calls are just back to back. And so I found that our team actually we were texting one another in the background, right? So whole text chats going on, um, which is very different than in, in an in-person meeting, you, you can't do that sort of thing. So there are some pros and cons, I think, of whether it's live or virtual. Yeah. Okay. Um, so what advice would you each share with our audience um, regarding any top tips or advice for preparing for a financing event? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, as we think about the financing process, like before, during, and after, right? I think it goes to many of the things we've talked about here. Preparation in advance of the outreach in terms of, you know, building the model and understanding what the clinical studies are gonna look like preparation in advance of the actual meeting itself to know who's gonna say what and figuring out how to communicate complicated information in a clear and compelling fashion. So that's pre. During the meeting, it's about that balance of optimism with reality, right? Helping normalize the team, I think, and that, that I think gets directly to what you were talking about, Anne, uh, earlier. But then after the meeting, really being part of that post hoc analysis and saying, okay, what ended up working, what didn't? And oftentimes in particular, being able to give honest feedback to your team members, maybe not in the broader context, maybe pulling one of them aside and saying, hey, you know what? Like, and, and it could be something trivial, like, hey, when you're on the Zoom, you tend to scratch your back like this. You know, maybe you don't want to do that. But but the 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 
And, and occasionally giving people pats on the back as well, which is sometimes we, we forget about doing. And especially, you know, here I am again, especially with CEOs who often don't get a lot of pats on the back, like just everybody complains, yeah, thank you. Um, you know, so I think oftentimes that, that can go a long way in, in helping maintain team cohesion. So the benefit of sitting in the middle is you get a chance to think, but you also don't get to give the easy answer. So uh, I'll try to add to it. It was, it was a well, very good answer. I just want to be very clear about that. So a couple of tips in addition to what Tarek said. Getting the story right is more than just preparing. It's making sure that you have something that's fluid, that flows, that can convey key points and that the slides tie to the messaging and all of that works together. And the way you pull all that together is through a dry run. And so that's the easiest way to give somebody feedback is either A, you have a coach come in who doesn't have a vested stake in it and they can give you pointers on what to say, how to reframe something, how to sound more animated and maybe not drone on, which is something that is a possibility with uh, certain biotech management teams. And so ultimately the, the story combined with the dry run is what we've done actually at Locust Walk is a very effective way to draw out uh, the best of a management team uh, ahead of time. Gosh, what can I add? Well, the only thing that I can say is train yourself to listen at two levels. What is the question you're getting? And what is the information they need? Um, it's like talking to your spouse. Sometimes they, they tell you, they ask you for one thing, but you, you, you know they really want something else. And so um, finessing that is hard because if they ask what sounds like a very technical question, and you know what they really want to know is a question about probability of success or differentiation from your competitors, um, you can't start here. You, 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 you have to get them there by at least engaging with the question that was actually verbalized. So you say, well, we've... Um, our drug does this and this and this and this, and you may wonder how is this actually different from pa 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 pa, and so you lead them to it. And um, I think it's very helpful to, 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 especially as you start doing this, to really distinguish between what are they asking for and what do they need. At the same time, <laughs> don't overdo it. Um, sometimes a cigar is just a cigar, sometimes a question is just a question, and they don't need um, a whole lecture about your entire development plan and the entire state of the art in this particular disease. Great. So let's turn, I, I think the, the way we've approached it so far is there's no dysfunction, everything's perfect, the team works together, um, they're experienced and someone is, is preparing. As a CMO um, or a CEO, what if you feel like the team hasn't put as much preparation in or you feel like there are things that we should really maybe explore further or you don't agree with something in the S1, for example? How do you, how do you deal with that with your team? What's, what's the approach you might take for that? If it's a factual inaccuracy, you just correct it and you stand no nonsense because I think that's non, not negotiable. No bullshit, no evasions. If it's m more of those interactive things, it becomes a little, a little harder. And one of the things that I, I think of that happened to me is, um, and I think the women in the audience will understand this, that um, at some point, my colleagues started answering questions that were intended for me. And... Um, 
because we had given the spiel so many times, the answers were correct because they've heard me say it so many times. And that was an, an occasion where I had to actually, I did it, it was not the CEO, it was not the CEO, it was some, it were other people on the team and I went to the CEO and so can you remind everybody that we do have, we have practiced these hands off and we have these little code words as to who needs to address which question and the CEO um, functions a little bit as the master of ceremonies, rephrases the question and say, um, I think the best person to answer this is this person. Can you remind everybody that we need to not stick that that is our game plan and it's working well let's not change it so that was one one example of um where i saw some drift on the good functioning of the team that could be pulled back in in a in a non-confrontational way and before it got before it got to the point where i had to say <coughs> this question for, for it was for me i will answer this one thank you so yeah that, just that might not go stuff. over so well, right? I mean, it speaks to the team dynamics that it, investors are looking at those sorts of things. Definitely. You know, one thing that I would just say is that oftentimes a point of tension in investor presentations, especially when a company is fairly early in its life, is how much airtime do you give to the programs? How much airtime do you give to the platform and the strategy? And it's very hard to get that balance right. I don't mean, I, I don't even know if, if right really exists. But in that circumstance, which I, which I think is kind of a perennial issue, um, one thing that really helps is talking to friendlies first. So give the presentation to one of your existing investors or somebody who you know who, who maybe is a friend and probably maybe ideally like not that likely to invest, so you're not likely to just totally ruin your chances with them. Um, then that way you can actually walk through it and see how it feels, get somebody's reaction, and maybe get some honest feedback, honest feedback on how the whole thing is playing out. So I can't add too much to either of what you said, but just one thing with, which Zoom makes a lot easier is you could text back and forth. And so what I would say is if you're the CMO, I'd probably text the CEO so you can have live corrective conversations if needed, and we find that to be very effective coordinating used that technique recently. Um, great. So we've got about five minutes. Why don't we open to audience questions? Uh, there's someone coming. And if you could just introduce yourself, please. Hi, Brennan Weiss, Nemo Therapeutics. I have an embarrassingly old-fashioned question about this financing. Um, as a physician, is there like a go-to book, like an actual written narrative document <laughs> that that someone in my position could sit in a quiet room and, and digest all this instead of bugging like my network and stuff? Because it, I feel like, you know, I never, I, I've spent, you know, 25 years thinking about medicine. So um, are there suggestions? So there are IPO boot camps you can go to. A lot of law firms put them on. Those are often free, so that's just one idea. Um, without being too shameless, we actually are going to be putting together uh, kind of a new company creation playbook, which includes how to raise capital. And happy to um, talk to you about it afterwards if you want. But there are resources out there uh, from providers and others, but I don't know if there's a book per se. You can go to Amazon and buy. Okay. Here's an idea. Yeah. <laughs>
I'll just take this off. Vilna Strakovic, Snipper Biome, Copenhagen, Denmark, CMO. A great conversation. I was wondering if you could comment on the earlier discussion, also from the Morgan Stanley presentation, around the current financial climate and how that informs the conversations with investors and whether there are anything that we can learn, of course, beyond staying on message. So Jessica's point this morning, you know, there was a lot of discussion about um, we've seen companies going out early, milestones, metrics, data flow, those sorts of things. So there's plenty of capital out there. The question is at what price? And so if you have a high quality company, great data, real programs, great management team, you know, there is capital to be had. Your Series B might not be called a crossover. It might actually be a real Series B, which is another private financing round, which further compresses valuation to your eventual IPO. So uh, I, I think the, the environment is certainly challenging. The crossovers have certainly pulled out of doing, the crossover investors have pulled out of doing the private side of crossing over and just make public investments now because there's 150 companies trading below cash and everyone's on sale uh, all day, every day, at least Monday to Friday. So basically you're stuck with the private investors if you're a private company. Uh, and I think there's, there's more competition, but there's a lot of capital out there. So that doesn't maybe help you too much as to how to adapt. Um, my, my advice as, a, as an advisor would be thinking about partnering as well to get non-dilutive capital, reduce your burn, more validation, live to fight another day, look at all your different options. We're seeing more and more companies, both public and private, consider partnering in addition to traditional equity raises. Yeah, I don't have much to add to that. I think that the current environment is, I mean, as you know, to the, the, the earlier questioner, um, who you know may not uh, you know certain CMOs may not have a ton of experience going through these kinds of market cycles in the context of biotech, but we have seen this before. Um, previous times it has normalized. Obviously, this time could be different, but we will see. But where, like Jeff said, where it really plays out is valuation, and in the exact investor base, and also where you can play. So the Series B company may actually be a, a Series B company and then become a Series C company. That is a perfectly plausible path. That is what the way things used to be. Great. Any other questions? All right, well, in the last half minute, any closing remarks that you'd like the audience to take away? It can actually be fun. It's intimidating before you do it, and then as you start to do it, um, you, you start to run on adrenaline. You, you, it, it, for me, it, it moved from something was intimidating to something that it's part of the gig. You got to do it to something. Oh, this, this is not bad. This is not so bad. I would just say that as much as uh, I think there is, uh, there is definitely a stay in your lane aspect to the role of the CMO. There, I also, me at, me at least as a manager, I really like to get strategic input from everybody on the team, and so getting. Uh, a CMO perspective on the overall arc of the company is a very, very important factor. And, and don't be afraid to uh, speak your mind. This is the great reckoning. Everyone has to answer to someone, and when you raise capital, that's the reckoning of a management team. So take it seriously, but also have fun with it. Great. I think that's a perfect spot to close on. So thank you. Appreciate all of the insight. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. 
For more information about the Chief Medical Officer 360 Summit, our editorial, podcasts, and webinars, please visit cmosummit360.com. Thank you.